If you have your Bibles and want to turn with me, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 15. And we started looking at last week. And so, Ryan, if you want to pull up the picture, this picture is from last week. And this is a picture of a Polish cavalry officer who was sent into, uh, and this is battle, so he's preparing for the advance of the uh, German panzer division of tanks that are invading Poland. And we talked about how he has been sent sent into an impossible situation where he is helpless and hopeless. He is unprepared for what is about to come to him. And what we talked about last week is Jesus is actually telling us that he's sending us out into a world that's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. He says, people are going to hate you and I'm sending you out and you're going to have to be as wise as serpents with innocence as doves. It's going to be difficult. But he then gives us Matthew chapter 10 to prepare us so we don't feel like we're unprepared in a very difficult situation. So he's going to start by giving us his instructions for how he wants his people to carry out his mission. So I want you to think about just what situations do you find yourself in life where following the directions are the difference between a catastrophic failure and success? So, I mean, it's whether you're trying to put together Legos or the Ikea furniture you got or what other things is, all right, following the instructions, following directions. You know, we're in that stage as our girls are in third and second grade where we're starting to have more and more homework uh, every night, which doesn't just cause problems for them. It causes problems for mom and dad. And so I feel like we're kind of in this window where, you know, I have to apologize to Cynthia, but I only got about two or three good years where I can help at all. Because once they transition to about fifth grade math, then it's just over my head and I'm, I'm done. So I can only help them in this stage. And we were doing some math homework the other night and I made one of them kind of do the whole worksheet and then I was going to come back and check it. And when I came back to check it, it was remarkable. We had missed every single one. Every single question was wrong. I could not believe the incre- that's consistency. I mean, that actually takes some, some doing. I mean, so you can lock up and get one or two right, but every single question was wrong. So all right, let's figure out how do we do this? Do we have a significant learning disability that we need to adjust and, and start to focus on? Or does dad just not want, know what's going on? And what had happened is we had just not read the directions. And so got everyone wrong. So you know, there's certain things. You don't follow the directions. It doesn't matter how energetic you are. It doesn't matter how sympathetic you are. Like if you want to go to Miami and you start traveling north on the 417, it's just going to take you a long time to get there. So you have to follow the directions. And what Jesus actually is going to do here specifically in 5 through 15 is he's going to give us his instructions, his directions. He says, if you don't want to be frustrated in life, you need to follow these directions. Frustrated in fulfilling the mission that I'm calling you to, the tasks that I've laid before my people. So we're actually going to walk through and we're going to see five different specific instructions that he gives to his disciples, his apostles, and then gives to us to follow so that we can accomplish uh, his mission in his world. And a couple of things as we go through this, actually this whole chapter, it's going to be really important to understand he's given specific instructions for a specific group of people at a very specific time. So we got to understand what they are. And then we have to extrapolate 
relate from that, all right, how does that then apply to us now? How does it apply to me in this way, in this world that I find myself in? So we'll kind of need to do those two steps. What's the specific instruction to them there? And then how does this then uh, shape and apply to us in general now? So let's pick up, um, actually start in verse 1 of chapter 10. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority, or he gave them power. So you want to notice, what does he give them? He gives them authority, he gives them power over unclean spirits to drive them out, to heal every disease and sickness. And then look in verse 5. And then Jesus sent them out, sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. So to prepare them, he gives them power and he gives them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles. So don't go this way. Don't enter into any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out the demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Don't acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worthy of his food. And when you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be upon it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for that town. So we're going to go through here. We're going to see five different instructions that he's going to give us. And the first instruction is he tells them where do they need to go for their mission? Where do you go? And what he's going to tell them is you need to go here, not there. Or you need to go there, not over here. Go here, not there. You see that verse 5 and 6. Jesus sent out the 12, giving them instructions. Don't take this road that leads to the Gentiles. Don't go into this town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he begins giving them a very strategic, limited temporary task and objective. And so the first key, if you're, if you're going to go anywhere, is you need to know where you're going. It's kind of like that classic line from the book, On the Road, where they're on the road and they stop in a Midwestern town and a, you know, a wise country farmer asks them, you boys going somewhere or are you just going? And there's a big difference. So you actually, are you going somewhere or are you just riding? And so he said, all right, where are you going? So that's the first key. And notice where he tells them. He says, all right, you're going not to the Gentiles, not to the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he sends them to them first. He's like, all right, why Israel? Why there first? There's a couple different reasons. There's kind of a redemptive, historical, biblical, theological reason that the gospel is going to go to Israel first. It goes there uh, to begin with and then moves out. But there's a couple just kind of general practical things about this. Notice he calls them, he says, you go to the lost sheep. Now, it's interesting that he calls them the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to the lost. Now, that word you could also translate go to the perishing. It's the exact same word from John 3, 16. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not 
perish. Same word, go to those who are perishing, those who are lost. And what I find interesting is Jesus is sending them to the lost sheep, but none of them would have self-identified that way. They wouldn't have said, yes, that's who I am. Oh, you're looking for lost sheep? Well, I am lost. Come they, they saw themselves as children of Abraham. They saw them as the found ones, the one who had the hope, who had the oracles of God, who had the law, who had the light. They wouldn't have actually seen themselves as that way. So on the one hand, this is going to be challenging because they're, they're going to bring something to people who don't think they need what they're bringing. Go to the lost sheep. But then there's some wisdom here. You know, he tells them, start where you are. Go to the people that you know. And I think for kind of their ministry, and then for our ministry and life, you know, you begin where you are. And in some sense, even though it's going to be difficult, their ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, it's going to be easier than it will be when they actually go out to the Samaritans and the Gentiles because there's not all these different um, barriers. They, they don't have the cultural prejudice. These are people that they know. This is land that they know. They know how to get around. They know how to get into the town. They know people there. Presumably, they love people there. <clears throat> so he's beginning saying, go to the people and places you know, the people and places you understand understand who you love. So you can think about it. Start, in essence, where you are. You know, in this area, we have a number of the different uh, kind of ministry headquarters, and some people have, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear about the global expansion of, of what God's doing all over the world. I was talking to somebody a couple months ago, and kind of part of their job was to kind of help filter applicants to kind of get them located in the right place. And there was a, a young man who kind of come who felt very strongly and kind of burdened that he was uh, called to be a missionary in China and be sent to China. And so he started asking just questions about, well, have you ever been before? He said, well, no. Well, have you ever taken a short-term mission trip kind of anywhere before? No. Um, have you ever visited any country outside of the United States? So I went to Canada. Well, I guess that counts. Not necessarily cross-cultural, but kind of counts. He says, all right, tell me about kind of among your neighbors and your friends how you're reaching kind of out to them. Well, I'm not. So, all right, well, let's, let's kind of move back. So, appreciate the grand call to go here, but let's, let's start here and progress slowly. And so, this is the way it begins. You, if you start where you are, you evaluate your experience. All right, am I prepared for this? Was I blessing these people? Did it seem worthwhile, exciting? Does God call me to this? You know, he sends the 12 to those, in one sense, people who are kind of prepared for their message and people they loved. And so, you think about that, just the application, all right, for our church in general. You know, we are at the stage as our church in general of laying the foundation, this foundation laying work. We're saying, all right, we're here. Now, where are the specific, limited areas that he's calling us to be and go to? Kind of the unique areas of brokenness. You know, one of our prayers is Paul's prayer where he says, like a wise master builder, I laid the foundation so someone else can build upon. So we're in the stage asking God for the grace to be wise master builders to lay a foundation in this community. But they're given a strategic, limited, and temporary objective. 
And then you think about that just as a principle for life. That's just a wise principle for life. Anything you're trying to achieve, it's a good idea just to start small. Start where you are. So just think about your life. Is there anything you're trying to accomplish and achieve? And what's the smallest place you can start so you can start moving along in that direction? That's what he begins with them. First place, go here, not there. And then notice the second thing. He tells them what they're supposed to do. What are they to do in mission? And their calling is to herald and heal. See that in verse 7? As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out the demons. Freely you received, freely you gave. And as we go through this whole section, the things that kind of hold in mind are the team he puts together. He puts together this unified team with a varied gifts to accomplish the mission. He gives them this core task, and then they're going to have all types of trouble, but they're going to need to trust him all along the way. And that's kind of the, the way it moves. And this reminds us, last week we focused on the task, the task of word, the task of deed. They have two components, something they're supposed to say and proclaim, then something they're supposed to do, word, deed. And so, so much of the ministry that he highlights here is the deed ministry. Notice what the things, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out the demons. We looked at last week, kind of a framework for what does it mean to attack, to fight the works of the devil in all of its many ways. But think about it. Heal the sick. You know, that's the word for therapy. Heal what's broken. You know, often therapy takes a long, slow, steady process. Heal the sick. You're called to heal what's broken. You know, raise the dead. You're called to combat the forces of death. What are the ways that the forces of death are impinging and coming in upon your world? You know, the great Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. One of Satan's primary desires is to steal those, to kill those. The fruits of the Spirit, his primary desire is to kill them, to kill, kill love, joy, peace, patience. So think about it. In what ways are the forces of death trying to destroy people's peace? What ways are they trying to destroy people's hope? What ways are they destroying people's faith? What ways is people's love being destroyed and killed? And it's our job and response responsibility to fight that in all of its fronts and cleanse the leper. You know what cleansing the leper is? We saw in Matthew chapter 9 is Jesus bringing in those into his people who have been outcast. Who are those who have been outcast and how are they brought in? But the point is not just to bring in kind of the people who feel awkward or the wallflowers. The point is the outcast or the people who are not engaged in the living worship of the living God, which is why they were created. They've been outcast from the temple. And the whole goal is to bring them back into God's presence so they can encounter him. And love him with all their heart, might, and soul, and strength. Cast out the demons. Liberate from the oppressive powers of the devil that we saw last week. Like Matthew Henry said, they go out to conquer the devil, cure the world. So it's an interesting calling. He sends him out for these things. But he gave them specific power to do very specific things in a specific place. So think about your own life. All right, what areas of this brokenness are we called to minister to? to try and heal in the community in general, in your neighborhood specifically, in your own family, in your own home uniquely? What are the areas of brokenness? These are the things he calls his people to do. 
All right, and let's look at the third thing. Notice, how are they to do the mission? Now look in verse 8 and 10. Uh, after you heal the sick, he says, freely you received, freely you give, and then don't acquire gold, silver, copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worthy of his food, his wage, his food. And so I think the principle here is that he's telling them, I'm sending you out and you need to do ministry that's simply, not grandly. So it's, it's in one sense, this ministry I'm sending you out is not for sale. You know, it's interesting because he tells them at this point, don't acquire gold, silver, copper, don't take money for what you're doing. You think, all right, why does he tell them that? And actually, when he sends the 72 out, when Luke, the next cycle that Luke tells him, he tells them something different. But in this stage, why are they not to take money for what they're doing? And you think about it, like in this world, healers, you know, in this world, somebody who could come and bring the type of healing, the power that he's giving them, could become fabulously wealthy and fabulously famous incredibly fast. And so there's all types of interesting stories, like a story, the famous story of Apollyanos, who uh, there was a plague in the city of Ephesus, and he was able to arrest and stop the plague, and then he instantly became the richest man and the most celebrated man in town. And so you could become fabulously wealthy, fabulously famous by this kind of power. And it's worth thinking about, all right, in our world right now, what are the ways that people can become instantly famous or instantly wealthy or instantly powerful? What are the quickest paths to power in our world right now? I think it's fascinating. Jesus is telling us, this is not why I'm giving you this power. It's not, you do not walk down this path. What are the easy ways to be famous or celebrated? He says, you have to do my work, but it's also in my way. And I think one of the things he wants to get them, at, get them to is just the power of simplicity as they go. You know, it doesn't, the laborers, they deserve their wage, but the power. He says, at this stage, it is your job to travel light, to travel lean. You run lean. You know, we think about our church. You know, how does this apply to our church? You know, up until this point, one of the big things we've tried to do here is at this stage to, tr to, to run lean, travel light, be lean, just to see if we can survive. And then now we're moving into the next stage. We're trying to get more stability, more established. But at certain stages, it's appropriate to travel lean. And you all know how this kind of works in life. You know, the next hour during our baby dedication, we have a number of uh, first-time parents any of you are first-time parents? I mean, you remember what it was like when you were uh, pre-kids, married, and if you wanted to do anything, all you needed was a whim and about $10. And then you could just go. I mean, you want to just go to the beach for the weekend, you throw a backpack, and you could just go. You could get anywhere uh, you needed to be. I mean, you could sleep in till five minutes before you needed to be anywhere, and then just get up and go, and you'd still arrive on time. And then something happens when when you have your first child, that it so disorients you, you can't get anywhere on time. What you used to be able to go for a whole weekend with nothing but a book bag, you can't even go to Walmart now without filling the whole back of your car filled with stuff. You know, you know where does all this stuff come from? You know, we, so one of our solutions is we just don't travel. <laughs> 
So people ask us, you know, like, how do the girls do on planes? I'm like, I have no idea. I'll tell you after they graduate. You know, like my brother lives in North Carolina. And people say, when are you going to come visit us? Once the kids all graduate, well, you know, we'll see you then. Um, so we tried a family vacation a couple years ago. And we were just going to a hotel at Disney. So not that far. And we were only going to be gone two nights. And we were trying to work with it. All right, it's time to get some responsibility. You need to pack the things you need, like your toothbrush and your socks. And only, we're, we're not filling the car up with stuff. So he said, you, you only get one bag and it has to be essentials. Okay, daddy, we got it. We got it. So they come with this giant yellow duffel bag. Fill. I'm like, all right, that's not bad. I can work with this. All right, let's get in the car. And then we get to the hotel and open it up. And they start unloading their essentials. And I have to take a picture of it. Ryan, pull up this picture. That bag had no clothes in it, no toothbrush, no it had 32 stuffed animals. I said, what, only the things that are essential for you, and they busted, look, we can't sleep without these. These are, these are essential, 32 stuffed animals. And so you know how just somehow in life you just... Uh, accumulate things and you get weighed down. He used to joke about Winston Churchill. He couldn't travel anywhere without about 15 train cars filled with stuff. So, I mean, maybe their 32 stuffed animals is easy. But one of the things he's telling them is, all right, you're going out on a mission. And in this stage, you have to learn how to travel light. And there's such a profound power in simplicity. And you can see that in the rise of things like the minimalist or uh, Marie Kondo helping us purge because we have so much stuff. How do you travel light? And it's not just seasons, there's also callings. And that's one of the things. So if you find yourself today, and Mother's Day can be a unique sadness for you. Because it, it reminds you of a hope that's been deferred. It reminds you of a disappointment or something you don't have. Remember the, the beautiful gift and the calling that certain seasons are. And you know, one of the things about singleness, Jesus is sending them out on a mission. And he's saying, look, you're going to have to travel lean. And one of the things that it's easy to forget, because, you know, the beautiful thing about the gospel is we can say two things at the same time. And so on the one hand, we say that the family is God's, God's primary way he brings stability to society and, and expands his kingdom. The family, we celebrate mothers because it's good and holy and a wonderful gift. But we also exalt and celebrate singleness because that is a season in which, it could be a season, it could be a calling, it could be a life where you are committed to being unencumbered with all of that baggage and you can single-mindedly focus on his mission and his calling. And one of the terrible things that Satan does is he tries to steal God's good gifts and twist them. And one of the things he's done in the last 20 years is he's stolen the conception of what a single life can be and twisted it, turned it into this sex in the city, glamified, glamified pursue my own pleasures and my own career when the gift is to single-mindedly focus on the expansion of his kingdom and following his mission. He's telling his disciples, if you're going to travel. You're going to accomplish this mission. You got to travel lean. You got to be light. You got to move with, you got to be lean. So it can be a gift. And so that's the third thing. Now let's look at the fourth. What, with whom do they do mission? And notice it's with interesting word. He repeats it with the worthy. 
So maybe all of kind of your gospel intuitions are starting to go off and like, wait, with the worthy? And no one's worthy. Who, what does this actually mean? So look, it says the worker first, he's worthy or he deserves his food. So don't take all these things. The people you minister to should, should take care of you. You don't need that. But then when you enter a town or a village, find out who's worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it's unworthy, let your peace return to you. So that word is it's worthy or deserving, those who are worthy. And the way they demonstrate it is a couple things. You notice in verse 14, if anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words. So the way you can tell if they're worthy is do they welcome you with open arms? Are they hospitable, generous, hospitality? And then listen. Do they listen? It says stay there and then keep your peace there. But I think that, that concept, who's worthy, another way you could kind of frame it is who's receptive. Those who are open, those who are receptive, and they prove that they're receptive to being generous and then being uh, in tuned to listening. They welcome you. They open up their words. And I think just in ministry in general, one of the hardest things, especially like in this area, one of the things we've noticed is one of the real hard things about church planning is kind of get to a place of kind of critical mass so you can do the things you need to do. But in those early stages, there's such it's temptation to just kind of whoever, you know, whoever comes or whatever they want to try and accommodate everyone. And one of the things Jesus is challenging them, he said, you need to focus on those who are receptive. Those who are going to be receptive. And that's one of the hard things. You just know this in life. Like, how do you balance um, faithful, sacrificial love to love in hard places, difficult people, with um, ministry and loving to those who are receptive? But one of the things he's going to say is, here's who I want you to focus on. You're not actually going to spend your time on the people who aren't going to listen and who don't want you there. Look for those who are hospitable. Look for those who are receptive and open and focus on them. And then notice he starts, this transitions into the next big section, which is how do they deal with rejection? Look at verse 13 and then moving through 15. The household is worthy. Let your peace be on it. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What does he mean, let your peace be on it? You know, one of the things that it's hard, can kind of be hard for us to conceptualize is how powerful people in other cultures and other parts of the world believe words are. And in many ways, they're right. So the idea of let your peace be on it means that your peace is actually something you can place. And by placing peace on it, it actually brings to fruition what you say, that our words are powerful. And that's just the way life is. I mean, our words are just powerful. That's why things like um, we saw last week, we looked at the works of the devil, you know, probably five out of the seven different things are twisted speech. But that's where we get the concept, you know, when we say goodbye, you know, goodbye is shortened from God be with ye. You're saying someone to, you know, as you leave, we want you to go and God be with you as you go. So have you ever watched like any of the Jane Austen novels and one way they really offend people? Like Lady Catherine de Bourgh, when she's utterly offended, she'll say, I do not wish you good day. I will not wish you farewell. And you can look at that and like, <laughs> 
silly old lady. Who cares? And, but no, they actually believe there's power in how you place your words on people. So he says, let, take your peace. Let your peace rest on them. But notice what he tells them. He says, you're going to have to leave the unreceptive places. Let them return. And he says, if anyone doesn't welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. Now, I don't know the origins of the Taylor Swift song about uh, shake it off. <laughs> you know, haters are going to hate. And what do you do? Just shake it off. I mean, maybe this, that's a Matthew 10 song. I don't know. <laughs> But he tells them, you're actually going, you know, they have his message. They have his power. They actually have the ability to raise the dead. If anybody is going to be successful, it's going to be them. And then what does he tell them? You're going to be rejected. By and large, from a world's perspective, you're going to fail. And here's how you're going to respond. You shake the dust off. And that's what kind of pious Jews would do as they walk through Gentile towns. When they left, they'd shake the dust off as well. You know, I don't even want any of that just dirtiness clinging to me. And then this final verse is really a scary verse. It says, I tell you, it'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than that town. I think, wow, what does Jesus mean? I mean, hasn't Sodom and Gomorrah already had their judgment? Is there something else that's coming? He says, this is actually going to be worse for the towns that reject your message. And you see the seriousness of rejecting the gospel and being unreceptive. You know, it can't be overstated. So the time is coming. And so... Here. So here's there's five different um, instructions. And one of the things Jesus wants to do is encourage them. He wants to strengthen them. He wants to strengthen their identity. He told them in Matthew chapter 4, I'm calling you to be fishers of men. He's told them in Matthew chapter 5, you're the light of the world. And then he's going to tell them here that the way people treat you is going to be synonymous to how they treat me. And eventually he'll tell them that all authority in heaven and earth is mine. So I'm sending you out to make disciples. And one of the things we see is how just important it is to go with a group, go with a team. You know, one thing that I've been reading this past year was uh, a book on when they broke the four-minute mile. Uh, it was called Running the Perfect Mile. It's such an interesting story and kind of the backstory in 1954, Dr. Robert Bannister, who was a med student. So if any med students need something to do on the side, maybe you can pick up some thought to be impossible athletic feat and see if you can break it. So at the time, you know, human experts believed the body was incapable of running that fast. And uh, many runners, you know, would fall short just of the mark. And so he actually was one of the first to believe it was just mental. It was some type of mental uh, barrier. So he was a med medical student and an amateur runner. He had no coach, no endorsements. He could only train when he worked it in, in between uh, class. And by most reports, he, he wasn't super fast. Um, but he got the most out of himself, and it's kind of remarkable when he actually did break it for an official time. One thing that kind of is lost in the story is he wasn't the only one running, and he actually had one of his good friends named Chris Brazier who went out and set the pace for him. And he cut through the wind, and Roger ran right behind him for about a lap and a half. And then he fell off, and then his other friend, Chris Cataway, came in right behind him and kept the pace, kept him running. He drafted behind him, and uh, Bannister didn't actually move out from behind him until the last 200 meters, 200 yards. And then he sprinted past and got his official time of 3 minutes, 59.4 seconds. 
Well, essentially, he never would have done it without his friends. And one of the things Jesus is telling you here is, I'm sending you out with this team, this community. We're sending you out on mission, and you can't do it alone. And one of the things we celebrate, communion, every week, because one of the things it reminds us, it doesn't just remind us of his death for us. It's also remind us that we do this together, that all the things we're called to do, all the things that he sends them on mission to do, no one can do it alone. And as we get ready in the next hour to dedicate and celebrate the gift of children, you know, no one can raise their children alone. No one can accomplish this mission that he's given for life in any stage alone. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you, for you together. Everyone who comes to the table and eats, you're in this together. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take in remembrance of me. And now as we pray, just take a moment, ask the Lord to help you, help give you, or help you give thanks for the team that he's given you to be a part of, the people he's put around you. And maybe you need to ask, all right, do you know where he wants you to go for the mission that he's called you? Do you know the things that he's wanting you to do, to ask him for courage or clarity? How confident are you in where he's sending you? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not send us into places unprepared. We thank you for giving us the instructions, the directions, the way that we should walk. We thank you for your word that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we confess that very often we are like two eager second graders who want to do the work before we've read the directions. And so help us, help us to hear your voice and give us the strength and courage to follow it wherever it may lead. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this day, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.